Welcome to A Fistful of Truth. I am your host, Delara Essengill, and you can find my podcast on anchor.fm, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, as well as other platforms that are listed on the portal at anchor.fm to A Fistful of Truth. You can also find me on my Telegram group and on my Telegram channel. Those links are listed here in the podcast description. Also, as if that didn't keep me busy enough, you can find me almost daily on my blog at delaraessengill.blog. That's delaraessengill.blog. If you visit the blog, there is tons of information for you to peruse through and share with others during this time of the Great Awakening, from newbies to more seasoned truth seekers that have to do with the human soul, dimensional travel, time travel, Baphomet genetic manipulation, cannibalism, and yes, he's still your president. All of these topics can be searched by simply entering the name or topic or any word, keywords, into the search bar, and it'll pull up all the different types of articles that you can peruse through, which reference other sources as well. Always do your own research and use your discernment. In the meantime, I want to thank everybody who is supporting this listener-supported only program. There is a monthly uh, membership that's available, and I'm trying to reach a hundred members. I'm still at 37 members, guys, so anybody wants to step up and help out a fistful of truth, this does make this programming possible as there are no sponsors and no commercials, no annoying commercials. Well, I hope to keep it that way. If we can keep it that way, that would be terrific because I am not trying to profit off this movement. I am trying to keep this going and make this possible daily. And I am still applying for work on the side because you never know what's going to happen. And if that does happen, I won't be able to continue all of this unless this becomes a listener supported platform. So I'm trying to get to 100 monthly members. And right now, it's only at 37. So maybe you'll become the next member. Maybe tell somebody about it who can become the next member who listens to this podcast. It's only 99 cents a month, $5 a month, or $10 a month. Really nothing, a fraction of a cable bill. And uh, that helps keep uh, other people informed and keeps this podcast going. Also, you can donate by PayPal. There is a link to do that. And if you prefer, there is a Venmo donation link as well. Also, uh, there is a new programming this week. We have new programming and I'll tell you what's happening. We'll just go over it real quick before we get into tonight's episode. Today is the 27th, Thursday, January, 2022. And on uh, today, which is Thursday, we are featuring this new series with Sergeant Mike Fanning from the last series we did together called a LA non-confidential. I urge you to listen to all seven episodes in linear formation as it is a linear series. So start with one and end at seven invaluable information folks from somebody who's giving you an uncontrolled narrative and never before told exclusive story uh, about what really and how, excuse me, how the cabal infiltrated all of our infrastructure, especially through our law enforcement divisions in our beautiful country of America. Sergeant Fanning tells it like it is, and he's back to give us a new narrative, a new uncontrolled narrative, continuing his career as a U.S. contractor abroad in Afghanistan. And other aspects of his career are also brought from dark to light in this series called The Next Revolution Will Not Be Televised. 
And let me tell you something, you know, I get to hear a lot of this stuff for the first time from Micah, you know, some of it I know, but of course there's details that I don't know. And I'm just, when we end the calls, I'm, I'm like at the edge of my seat going, do we really have to end now? Well, I anticipate this will be a few more episodes, but tonight's episode, if you haven't heard the one from last week called The Next Revolution Will Not Be Televised, please go back before you listen to this one and make sure you listen to episode one first. It is here on all of the different platforms. It's an audio podcast. Also, there is a blog article on the blog at DelaraSingill.blog that corresponds with every post that I make for the podcast with Mike as he provides so kindly uh, listener notes and recommendations for reading that he talks about and presents to you in these podcasts. So uh, this week, I have some exciting news. So tonight is the, uh, the feature with Mike Fanning. And tomorrow is very exciting. You will see a vlogcast of uh, myself and Dr. Masaru Emoto's son, Hiro Emoto, who is the president of Dr. Emoto's endeavors now in Japan and Tokyo. So Hiro and I have reconnected uh, some years ago. I was an attorney and friend and patient of Dr. Masaru Emoto's, and I have learned a lot from him. And part of my work in this world, actually all of my work in this world, has to do with the meeting that um, the meeting of the minds and heart and intention that uh, Dr. Emoto and I and Hiro share for this planet, for humanity, for love and gratitude, uh, for our consciousness, to raise our consciousness as we move away from the 3D matrix. And tomorrow, Hiro will be on A Fistful of Truth. So you'll be seeing that in video only on Spotify, where the vlog is located. And every other platform will feature the audio version of my interview with Hiro Emoto. So stay tuned for that tomorrow night. Don't miss it. And then return, come back for Saturday night because I have a Saturday night rant because there's a lot to rant about because there's a lot happening and there's a lot of crazies out there. So we get to talk about them. On Sundays, Spiritual Sundays, beautiful readings and teachings from Yogananda and uh, other t- other times I will be featuring some, some reading from the Vedas and also always um, our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. Mondays are Monday Monday Matters. Monday Matters with the lovely one and only Greek Lightning, Maria Bernardis, who's unleashed, folks. She's unleashed. And we are reporting unleashed, uncontrolled news that nobody's controlling except Almighty Father God, who lets us witness, praise God, he lets us witness what's going on in Maria and I. Um, two attorneys on two opposite ends of the uh, United States. She's in New York. I'm in California. So watch New York, watch California, and tune in on Monday Matters to listen to what's going on because we might even need to step it up. There is so much happening, and we are giving you the news and nothing but. This programming is all bought to you free. And remember, listener supported. Tuesdays, Surviving the Storm with George Pittman, a complete and utter survival guide, recommendations, and tips on how to survive any emergency, but especially the supply chain. Have you noticed? The shelves are empty. The streets are empty. Things are going to get emptier, folks, and it's going to be hard to get stuff. So someone like George Pittman, a veteran, an integritous patriot, a Green Beret, a man with a sense of humor and a heart of gold is telling us and providing written PDFs on his own time for free. Uh, just helping, helping people, helping us guide us, surviving the storm. We just completed the three-part home survival 
uh, three-part home survival series with George. I know the reception was a little choppy, but to make up for that, we have a PDF on the website. So just type in Surviving the Storm on DelaraSingill.blog, and you'll be able to pull that up, print it out, pass it on to your friends, stick it in your closet, make sure you have checked things off that list because you don't want to be caught empty-handed when the storm really arrives and it's creeping up on us. Wednesday nights, I'm working on it. Wednesday nights, you know, I try to take a night off, but I just can't help it. A fistful of laughs. If I can get, uh, you know, it's hard to get these comedians on board sometimes because they're just so busy. Oh, saving. They're oh, saving everything. They're saving Medbed Horse. They're oh, saving Dracos. Uh, Draco oh, saving. They're oh, saving all sorts of things like, like catfish oh, saving. So stay tuned and we'll have some more saving to do. All right, without further ado, tonight, the next revolution will not be televised. This is episode two, and welcome, Mike Fanny. Well, Mike, welcome back to your show called The Next Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Well, Delara, it's uh, your show, and I'm your guest. <clears throat> And um, it's, it's a mutual effort. I mean, really, this no one owns anything. I don't believe this, this is just information in our lives. Right. I, correct. Information we wish we never had to live through. But, yeah, you know, we don't get to pick uh, our, our time on the earth. So it is. What Do it we, is. though? Do we? Though? <clears throat> no. No, we, 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 no, we, we, we choose to do what we do with the time we have on our earth Correct. For one, for one way or another. But, uh, you know, Almighty God picks the people to live in historical times that he wants to be there. Yes, he does. Because he knows beforehand, conditioned on grace and cooperation with grace or not, what people are going to do. But he mm-hmm. wants the people that are in the world today, right now, living through all of our garbage to be the ones to be here. Not anybody else. Amen. Well said. Okay. <clears throat> so, what do you want to talk about? What do I want to talk about? Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I did. I was just looking through the uh, notes that you sent because I hadn't had time to review them and I started reading them and I'm just blown away because it's so good. Um, and it's really speaking to my heart right now, what you're saying. So, let's just go right into it because sure. it's. It's uh, very relevant what you've put together. Okay, so um, way back when we started this um, series of podcasts at the, almost the very beginning, I informed your listeners that, um, not that I'm anybody really truly important, but it's that you're going to have to get used to somebody who's not used to talking um, you know, under this type of a format. My, my whole entire adult professional career was talking to people um, one-on-one in small groups and or small groups uh, through law enforcement settings and, and uh, other forms of, of uh, related employment uh, over the course of what was 37 years in public service. And <clears throat> that my way of thinking they would have to, your listeners would have to eventually get used to is that I'm going to bounce around on subjects somewhat tangentially um, exactly the way I would if I were, if you were the occupants in my patrol car and you were my partner and we were driving down the street and we were 
talking about whatever, and we were looking at our circumstances and responding to a radio call and looking at cars and people and, you know, seeing what's criminal and what's innocent and deciding what to do with what we see. And that's, for a lot of people, it's okay to do that way. You know, you're used to, you know, having fractured thoughts and you, you come back to them from time to time. <clears throat> but, but what people usually are used to is some form of uh, uh, organized, coherent presentation. You know, and we've gotten very used to that with <clears throat> the professional approaches that, that we experience with uh, modern media and and um, in their presentations. <clears throat> I'm not that way, though. And um, I, I, I'm putting that back out here at this moment because we're, we're at a port, a point, a point in time here with this, this subject matter that I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that the police career merged a lot of skills and experience and insights that shaped me and how I ended up becoming effective in the last 14 years of public service from 2001 through 2002. 14 or so and that when I look back and, and I'm trying to encapsulate in some kind of an organized fashion for your viewers what really is the big picture before we descend into specific details uh, because the and it's the way I used to work it used to be that I would take um uh, relatively new probationary police officers and bore them to tears over things that seemed absolutely having no no relationship whatsoever to what's presently in front of them as they're driving down the street or to pull over to an intersection when possible and run through scenarios about what the person, my partner, this young police officer that just got hatched out of a police academy, what what he he with his answers or her answers would be to the questions I would ask about pointing out looking at cars what do you see wrong with that car what do you see going over on with those people on that corner or there's a liquor store or there's a market and create a scenario of like a robbery in progress and what are you going to do you know and and then be prepared to get all the stupid questions back at uh, that that like I would have used to come back with when I was asked those same questions when I was brand new about how to solve these problems. It's torturous to try and think of. It's absolutely torturous. I mean, one guy, I won't name his name, but he was one of my favorite probationers. He goes, Mike, this was after a while. He goes, you know, the first three days I worked with you, I went home with these screaming headaches, <laughs> absolutely screaming headaches, because you just absolutely wore me out. Now, this kid had just graduated from um, Penn State University. He was a very smart young man, and he, he turned out to be one of my very most favorite uh, cops that I'd ever worked with. Um, and, it's, and it's things like, what they came to appreciate. Um, I had another partner 
whose whose father was a deputy chief on the police department. And when his son came on the department, he, he eventually got stuck with having me as a training officer. And we had some really good capers. And this kid was um, probably by fact that he had been, you know, raised in a law enforcement family, he knew how to roll with the punches. And our civilian population really doesn't know how to roll with the punches. And years later, Back in 2017, I, I went down to Los Angeles. You might remember that. <laughs> and, and, and one of the uh, places that I stopped on the way down was to have lunch with this, uh, this uh, now retired Los Angeles Police Department captain. And he was a chief of police in a uh, small jurisdiction in Ventura County. And this, this man, all grown up, out of nowhere, he tells you, he says, you know, some of the things, Mike, that you taught me, I used later on, <laughs> later on in, in, in my being a, a you know, a, a command officer on LAPD. And I go, yeah, I was one of the most hated people by internal affairs. Because <laughs> I never got into any of my, my in, into any of my own personal exploits on the department with your listeners. That's you know, it's not, it's not what this, this whole podcast it's not is. our subject matter. <laughs> it's not our subject matter. No, you talk about wanting to be bored out of your tear. Oh, I'm not gosh. bored folks. It's actually really no. funny, interesting, and hilarious at times. <laughs> well, so in thinking and preparation for, for today, I started out by following after the, um, the this most recent podcast uh, topics of that dealt a lot with, the Catholic Church and its involvement with uh, intelligence through the uh, through the ages, and in the back of my mind, I know that you know we're in a we're in a, a time where the reputation of the Catholic Church has been absolutely dragged down mm-hmm. uh, to uh, it, its um, lowest. No words, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's yeah, and it's it is shameful, and, and I've reminded. I've reminded uh, the listeners, Catholic or not, Catholic haters or whatever who's out there, li- you know, listening, is that you know I'm a, I'm what's known as a traditional Catholic. I don't participate in the uh, in the, uh, the the novelties and the adventures and the, and the reforms of the Second Vatican Council that took place uh, in the mid 1960s. Uh-huh. And in and so, and so I am particularly, number one, knowledgeable about my faith and about the circumstances of the church. Mm-hmm. And when I was trained, both in law enforcement and with uh, my um, um, U.S. contractor jobs, where there's, uh, you, you pick up a lot of the uh, military uh, mindset, which is really, really good. Um, you trained uh, to, when you evaluate and analyze circumstances first and foremost you see the big picture if you do not see the big picture you miss all of the smaller details which can and oftentimes are very very captivating and compelling but you would miss if you didn't know what the big picture consists of you would uh, not have the ability or the capacity 
to put what you do see in, this, in, the, in the here and the now uh, into what their actual relevance is. You can miss details and, and you could miss um, entirely gauging a situation complete and getting it almost completely wrong. So it's always important as a habit to view the pictures first in their widest scope, the big picture. Um, now I'm reading a book that's called The New Montanian Church. The word Montanian is of the name Montini, the surname Montini, who was, that was the surname of the cardinal who was elected and became, chose the name Pope Paul VI. And uh, he was head of the church from about um, here or there. I'm, I don't remember the exact date. Uh, somewhere between 67, maybe 65, somewhere in there, all the way through up until about 1975, 76, somewhere in there. And he, he was the one who was um, responsible for enacting the um, decisions to take the Catholic Church into a different direction. And there's going to be a, a time in the future, in the near future, where there will be a, a need to convene a council of the church with the Pope to go back and examine the pontificates, the papacies, the men who, who claimed to be Pope, who were elected to be Pope, from the date of the passage of Pope Pius XII that elect, saw the election of um, Cardinal Ron Colley to become and took the name of Pope John Paul, uh, Pope John the Twenty Third, followed by this man Montini, who became Paul the Sixth, followed by a brief stint in the chair of Peter by a um, a, a priest, a cardinal who was elected to be Pope, took the name John Paul the First. He was assassinated after 33 days of being uh, Pope, and which was the second attempt to kill him. And, and then he was succeeded by Carol Watiwa, who was uh, lauded to be the first non-Italian Pope in many, 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 many hundreds of years uh, from Poland. And uh, followed by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who was from Germany, and then followed by this current uh, um, disaster yeah. uh, uh, George Bergoglio from uh, Argentina. The case is, is there. It has been compiled throughout the, uh, the last 70 or so years that th these popes' names that I've just recited um, are one more or all of them are what are known as anti-popes. In other words, they were never popes and because they were not Catholic or they were um, holding situations which would uh, entitle them to be called heretics or apostates, that they, they could not possibly become the Pope of the Catholic Church. In the history of the Catholic Church, there have been 44, 44 anti-popes prior to 
these six popes, alleged popes that I've noted, that I've mentioned. Why is this significant? Is because in the previous episodes, I've talked about the infiltration of the Communist Party into the Catholic Church from the 1930s throughout the 20th century and continuing on today, but but primarily the importance of that infiltration would have enabled, facilitated, and made successful the plans of the Cheka, the NVKD, and then its successors, the KGB, and presently the FSB, the military-run state security, state intelligence organizations of the Soviet Union. And if you choose to believe that the Soviet Union fell in 1989 and communism was defeated, um, that uh, its present political agendas um, are still a threat against the the peace and, and tranquility for nations around the world. So what I wanted to start out with today, and then we're going to uh, um, merge into some actual events that I'm quite familiar with um, post 9-11 and go into some details about those because you deserve to understand and to know them and to hear from them perhaps for the very first time. But to go back to this topic of um, the KGB's a role in the Second Vatican Council. In this book that I've been reading uh, called The New Montenian Church, it is written by a priest who uh, his name is, I gotta go read the book here, the title. Reverend Father Joaquin Sainz E. Ariaga. Science is pronounced is, is spelled S A E N Z, the letter Y, and then Ariaga, A R R I A G A. And he wrote from a historical perspective with a boatload of bibliographical um, documentation, citing sources and quotations from sources that ex- that that explicitly show that events that were um, drawn from the, uh, the papacy of, of um, Pope Paul VI. We, uh, we'll put, anytime I refer to a Pope of the, of the modern post-Vatican Council area, you put, you put air quotes around those names because of the reasons that I explained that they, um, they stand to be accused of being anti-Popes. And if they are anti-popes, then that means that a period of time from the time that there was a last validly elected pope, the Catholic Church has been without authentic papal leadership in the chair of Peter to do the things that Christ divinely instituted that it would do. And the one thing that Christ would not accept and tolerate is the abuse of the authority that was vested in the chair of Peter, in the priesthood, and the episcopacy, the, bish- the bishops of the Catholic Church. Because with the death of the last apostle, divine revelation 
has been set and established and it cannot be changed. The rights and the orders for the, for the administration of the sacraments of the Catholic Church, which are therefore the salvation of mankind to be affected throughout every century until the very last moment in history, cannot be changed. But yet the Vatican Council has done just that. And so the premise that is held by uh, a scholarly few in, in traditional circles of Catholicism will be the basis upon which this case is going to be prosecuted canonically against these individuals who call themselves popes of the Catholic Church since 1960, uh, since 1958, up till the present moment. And the one thing that was accomplished by the, the KGB's involvement with these um, uh, Marxized and Marxist uh, impersonators uh, wearing the Catholic cloth, the cassocks, the Roman collar, who were priests and bishops and, and cardinals and popes of the Catholic Church, were to spread through the appearances of, of um, uh, the Catholic endorsement a thing called liberation theology in, in Western civilization, particularly in, in, in Latin America, which would be Mexico, Central America, and South American nations. It also spread to the Philippines and to the Catholic countries in, in the South Pacific. At the same time, Russia was infusing Marxism into what became known as radical Islam at the exact same time. And so, as we previously have explained that in the, in the uh, what came out of the decisions to put the East and the West as mortal enemies against each other in, in the 20th century, where we talked about Mazzini and Garibaldi and, and, and uh, Albert Pike meeting to plan out the three world wars and how that was going to take place. It gave rise to all of these intricate programs of infiltration that required the use of intelligence organizations, intelligence operations, propaganda, and psychological warfare operations. To that end, the greatest betrayal of simple little innocent-minded trusting believers in the Hispanic world in Latin America was betrayed and it was and it was documented in this book that I'm referring to here that specifically talks about how the Catholic Church opened up the doors to cooperate with liberation, with the Marxists, starting with Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and everything else that's come since. They, they were in particularly at the very outset responsible for populating, staffing, and funding the FARC guerrillas the National Liberation Front in Colombia, which is 
been around for since the 60s. At the same time, comparable Marxist objectives were being run through the Catholic Church in the United States by a not-so-Catholic Jewish communist by the name of Saul Alinsky. And um, they used such notable individuals as um, Cardinal Bernardine in Chicago and um, my old friend Cardinal Mahoney in Los Angeles. We've talked about those stories and those backgrounds. And it's, um, it, it gets the accomplishment of, of Marxizing and creating and constantly keeping stirred up class warfare and class struggle that is promoted and, and made uh, newsworthy uh, and carried uh, in newspapers and in the television and the radio programs uh, daily. And, and after a while, your country slowly, just like turning up the, uh, by one degree, you know, the frog, when you're cooking your frog, and next thing you know is frog's dead and you eat the frog, if you like frogs. And, uh, but, you're, but, the, but our population and every other country's population has been slowly effectuated to think that the, 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 the way in the presentations of, of the Marxist dialectic of your country is bad and, and you need to help us change it has taken, taken its toll. All we have to do is look at what happened to the United States border to border in 2020 after um, Mr. Floyd was, um, uh, there's different versions of what they think happened to him, but he's no longer with us. And, um, you know, in, in my day, you know, there's plenty of people that always wanted to fight. And they didn't want to go to jail. But the one thing we didn't do is kneel on them, kneel on all their various body parts after they had already been handcuffed and in a police car. And how did the guy get out of the police car? And then why couldn't they put him back in the police car? Right. And all those little things were never addressed. And, I mean, I cringe. I get really, really upset with thinking that this is what we have for police officers out here today. And then all these things happen. Mm -hmm. And how is it that these things can just happen and they're, they're co and, and that they, they're, they're, um, uh, there's, there's no connection between the people who did these things and, 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 and what's being made of it. Right. It's far too, Far too many of these 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 events that have taken place in in just the last thirty years since I've been gone from law enforcement since I've been retired, and I see I, I see what's literally wrong. The people don't see in the same way because they don't have the experience. Now, we have various commentators about our social circumstances that uh, people are you know well aware of. Uh, one of uh, Delara's uh, favorite broadcasters. <laughs> here it comes. She knows I'm going to set her up here. <laughs> is is uh, it's a conspiracy theory? It's a PB tape. 
it's Dan Bongino yesterday's program, episode 1690. <laughs> he starts outlining. I paid particular attention to it only after I started hearing him listening to him. He's, he was talking about propaganda and what propaganda is versus psychological operations. He called them psyops, and that's usually what they're referred to. And, and he was making his uh, distinctions and his definitions of things. And one of the things that I noticed uh, Delara's uh, friend, Dan Bongino, was saying was he was using a, a couple of words. Um, he used the word receipts. Now, I've listened to Bongino for a couple of years. That's the first time I've ever heard him you know, refer to the, uh, use the word receipts. But you know who uses the word receipts all the time? It's Steve Bannon. And then later on in this episode, Bongino used a word called strategery. Huh. In other words, it's a perversion of the proper uh, uh, way of pronouncing the word strategy. But Rush Limbaugh used to take words and kind of stretch them out of shape to make uh -huh. fun of people who, you, who used to say them uh, and, and mess the words up and distort them. And um, that was a Rush Limbaugh word, strategery. And what you see here, one of the things that I do kind of like as a side hobby is, is look for trends, see what things are changing, see if there's patterns that are starting to be forming. You know, without doing predictions, I don't do predictions. No one should, really should do predictions because it's a, it's a, I it's agree. A, it's a, it's I a agree. terrible, it's a, it's a terrible occupation. You wouldn't want to bet your, uh, your, your, your house payment on it. The Dion Warwick line, right. <laughs> Let's yeah. not go there. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. But um, so this guy is now trying to call over people's audiences with the incense of the memories mm -hmm. that he is wafting back in front of them as he goes on and explains um, his version of what propaganda and uh, psychological operations consists of. It's just kind of a side point that I wanted to bring out here. Thank Not you particularly for that. Uh, but but look at it if you, you know your audience wants to listen. You know his programs are usually an hour long, um, and uh, see 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 if you notice anything and what he brings out of it. Now for as far as what we're going to get into the meat of today, um, I'm going to do a lot of what sounds like literally reading my notes because that's in fact what I'm going to do, and if I don't do it uh, in order, then my my concentration is going to kind of fall apart. The last half of, of this episode uh, is going to be a lot of chronologically based um, events that I'm aware of that took place after 9-11, and we'll go through those. Um, but going back to uh, what I want to discuss beforehand is um, 
have you ever asked yourself, why do people who have no tactical decision-making experience get to weigh in and influence, such as the media and the internet-based personalities? And what do they call them? Um, I have lots of words. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's like a trendsetter. It's another one-word term. Anyway, um, how do these people, how do these types of people who have no background or experience in tactical decision-making uh, end up making tactical decisions? And for the same matter, why do people who have no strategic decision-making experience get to weigh in and influence um, and act uh, uh, and make decisions concerning strategic decisions. These are important things. Um, where do these people exist at? Those types of people? Well, what I wrote next is this, those two categories of people, that's what populates the think tanks and the media outlets and the policy development and policy deployment agencies, such as the National Security Council. I think we've all watched the, um, the, um, one of the um, impeachment hearings concerning the uh, Ukrainian telephone call that Trump had with Zelensky <laughs> And they, and they bring out all these State Department and National Security Council bureaucrat dwarfs, these little midget morons <laughs> with, the, with, the, with their power suits and their, and their military Class A uniforms, you know. You know and, and I mean, Alexander Vindman looks like what we used to call a, a, a five-pound sausage stuffed into a two-pound skin. My grandmother would have loved that. <laughs> that oh, that's hilarious. So, um, and, yet, and yet these people can sit in front of a microphone and um, spout misinformation, disinformation, purported as official government sources said that and da-da-da-da-da. And half, more than half the country or somewhere around half the country buys into it. That's the part of the country, my friends, that are Marxized. That's, that's where we're at. And that's the same reason when, when we're going down and trying to explain this not so rhetorical question is the condition of reason why that we have these, these voting results. Forget, I mean, before you ever get to ballot boxes and harvesting and Dominion voting machines and, and, and uh, you know, magical ballots that were printed in China that show up with people who, you know, uh, aren't allowed to vote and never did vote. Um, but, but the people who literally go out and cast a vote, they're voting for, for what's currently in the White House. And, and the things that have been in our lifetime that shouldn't have ever been elected to anything anything. And yet that's what's been running our country for the last, uh, well, before, before we were born. Decades. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see, 
the pre-socialists that got this started started out in the first half, the first two decades, first three decades of, of the 20th century. There's a, um, um, a Jewish guy, historian by the name of Myron Fagan, pretty reputable, uh, who talks about his, what was his favorite subject, which was um, the, the Jewish involvement in communism, his own folks, and also a, a separate, not separate as, as, as in distinctly different, but a specific aspect of, of, of uh, socialism, Marxist socialism called Fabian socialism. And it was the, um, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, Western, uh, what's known as the Eastern establishment um, of, of the Republican Party that existed and the, and the Eastern establishment society of New England, from New York, the state of New York, the city of New York, up through New England and all of the rich enclaves uh, that are in that part of the country, which were, uh, became liberal and became socialistic in their, in their mindset and their political agendas. Um, see, we get the United Nations as an outgrowth and a consequence of the failed attempt to bring the New World Order into existence under Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson uh, being the president um, during World War One, and and after the Treaty of Versailles was signed, trying to erect what was known then his idea, his little brainchild called the League of Nations, and it failed miserably. Yet the power that be, is behind this world, the occult, the secret societies, they they learn from their mistakes. Number one. They're persistent. They will never relent. They are irredentist. They're never going to convert to anything good. They're not our friends. And they're never going to go away. Yet in our lifetime, and in the immediate period of history that preceded our being born in the early half of the 20th century, we see these, these powerful groups getting more and more powerful where we get to the point of, of understanding and trying to take on a, a bit of an understanding of, of propaganda and uh, uh, psychological warfare operations and, and, and where do they come from and what's the relationship to that to uh, intelligence organizations. One of the things that was unique in the 20th century was the advancement of the ability to communicate radio, a little bit of the telephone at the very beginning, newspapers became more widely read. And it became as a means, a capacity, remember we talked about the capacity, is, its value is that on behalf of our enemy, they saw those as means by which they could control populations of target countries, which is every country for that matter, but some more, more so important strategically than others at given times for obvious reasons, and how to get that job done. 
and to go through what is known as the long march through the institutions, the 100-year march through the institutions, which was um, an early Bolshevik Antonio Gramsci um, cliche or term that was used. So when we start to look at the development of technology, we see that the control of populations and being affected to, to do things uh, voluntarily would weaken the strength and the resolve of, of targeted countries. The United States is at the top of the list of targeted countries. And so we confine our conversation and, and discussion mainly with that. But the same thing is going on in every country around the world. Even, even the poor little people of Afghanistan that I spent four years hanging out with, you know, they're affected by it. So, um, this is further accomplished by creating distances between the, the old guard, old world style of intelligence. Military intelligence still exists, but its role as being the exclusive uh, body by which governments would become informed of threats, external threats, perhaps even internal threats, um, was taken over and, and given to the civilianized, politicized Central Intelligence Agency and, and National Security Agency. And their charters, their charters which say that they can only look outward, outward, outward and that they conduct cannot ever conduct any, you can start laughing now, uh, uh, they can never conduct any uh, domestic uh, investigations on American soil and against American citizens, um, that that, can ever not, that can't possibly happen. Well, <laughs> the, having, having worked at a U.S. embassy, careful here there's um there's a um think of it as there's two main buildings at at an at american embassies they pretty much look the same one absolutely is distinguished apart from the other is because it has all the satellite antennas and dishes and stuff on its on its roof that's not the state department and that's not the embassy. <laughs> Sorry. And it's like it's like in the twenties when prohibition was going on, there was always the little restaurant on the corner, and you'd go to the back of the room, and it looked like just a, a closet. And next thing you know, it was a stairwell, and it was where the speakeasies were at. Well, the the United States Department, Department of State. Um, has long since, if it ever, has abandoned its, its role, its traditional historical role as a um, diplomatic mission with an ambassador to 
whatever country they're they're you know established in to conduct the uh, the affairs of state the proper legitimate affairs of state how can you do that when the central intelligence agency walks through the front doors or the back doors or underground passages, if you've watched Homeland, <laughs> you know, Carrie Matheson, uh, you know, boogie looing down the, uh, the underground corridors to, to get out and put on her uh, uh, hijab and go out there and hang out with the, uh, um, the man jammy crowd. Um, but, but it portrays what I've seen happen and what, what actually takes place. And I spent several occasions inside the CIA headquarters, inside the U.S. Embassy at, at uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, between 2011, I was in the country from 2010 to 2014. And from the time that I re-met one of my old LAPD partners who had been with the agency since 1985, which we talked about before, um, from 2011 to about 2013, I had about four occasions to be invited over there to discuss uh, circumstances that were occurring inside the um, um, Kabul airport uh, that had to do with money laundering. Pretty big deal. It really was. And, it, and the thing that I was asked to brief my friend's superiors about, it became obvious that they had no clue as to what was going on Hello? Hello? And of course, right here, we're being censored. So I'm gonna have to pick this up and give Mike a call back. Welcome back. Well, yeah, I'm glad to be back. I'm sorry. Um, I had a uh, personal phone call. And, uh, of course, you thought that it was the FBI coming to arrest me or you're being cut off because we were talking about things that maybe somebody didn't want us to talk about. But that's not exactly it. exactly yeah. what I said at the end. Well, not exactly, but I just yeah. I always assume it's the it's the uh, well, the bad guys or the good guys trying to be pretending to be back. Who knows? But now I know yeah. who it really was. So, yeah, it was it was a friend of mine. He's calling about some work we're going to have done in the next couple of days. So anyway, right. we were talking about the um, um, being in the embassy and talking about um, money laundering that was taking place at the uh, at the Kabul airport. And um, um, I don't think we're going to get to any of those details about that today. But we're just going to press on and talk about how the um, how the CIA and the NSA. Uh, get past their charters that say they can't do anything um, concerning what they do um, espionage-wise, uh, operations-wise uh, within the United States. And there's a process called papering through. Um, they go through the uh, State Department as they do elsewhere in the world, and they represent themselves out into the public domain, including the United States, as being members of the United States 
Department of State, uh-huh. sometimes referred to by its three letters uh, alphabet, uh, abbreviation DOS, Department of State. And they uh, nominally are called cultural affairs attaches. Uh-huh. So anybody that comes in <laughs> and knocks on your front door and says, hi, I'm a cultural affairs attache. I'd like to come in and, and uh, talk to you about a few matters. that's a big no no. (laughs) but that's what they do Um, where I first learned about that was when I was uh, taking scissors away uh, at the Spokane (laughs) International Airport Uh, oh but the Transportation Security Administration um, some of us actually joined TSA for good reasons and then once we were there we realized (laughs) Oh, hell no. And, and, and we all ended up going to work for um, um, Global Strategies Group over in Iraq or in the, and or Afghanistan, uh, setting up um, aviation security programs in um, both of those countries. And um, but back to back to uh, being a screener for uh, TSA back in 2002 through 2004. Um, what became a nightmare was that the United States government was never serious about really doing aviation security, you know, uh, factored against what, what its predicate was, which was how, how the, uh, these, these, these individuals got on these various five airplanes. I said five. Oh no, it was four. No, it was five on, on uh, September 11th, 2001. No, 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 Mike, it was four airplanes. There was four. Two crashed into the World Trade Center and, and one into, into the field in Pennsylvania. The other was uh, hit the Pentagon, right? Those, those four planes, no, there was five. How do I know that? Oh, well, a, uh, an unnamed individual who was a pilot for Delta Airlines um, was aware that the fifth plane at Logan, Boston Airport um, was on the ground and it had developed a mechanical problem. Wow. And they tried to fix, the, uh, having flown a lot, planes sometimes get mechanicals and, they, and they're electrical in nature or little lights and sensors go on and they you know it happens from time to time and they and they they but they announce it once once the uh, uh the flight is boarded and they're they're not re- they're, they're not going to do pushback from the gate um then they you know people are always worried about you know departing departing on time and and so the captains will come on and they'll say uh, folks we've got a slight little problem to deal with here you know and usually most oftentimes they fix it but if they don't then they have to deplane the the passengers and the baggage and transfer it over to another flight, or they can't they can't fit everybody up with a flight, and then they have to you know go uh, resort to other measures. But in this particular instance, this fifth plane, this uh, Delta flight, which I believe was supposed to go to San Francisco, it was. Uh, uh, by the way, <laughs> I didn't know about a fifth, but I do know about a plane. That was supposed to go to San Francisco. This is the first time I've ever heard anybody say it. So 
um, we, we live in similar worlds, don't we? So uh, this Delta pilot, which came oh, through boy. to him through wor uh, word of mouth within the, uh, the Delta pilot uh, uh, industry, you know, within that way of communicating, uh, developed this uh, mechanical problem and it wasn't able to be fixed. And they, uh, they deplaned uh, the passengers and began the process for de uh, getting the baggage transferred over to another flight which was what exactly was, was in the process of taking place, but for a small problem that arose. There was um, what turned out to be five Middle Eastern males seated in various seats on that plane who didn't get off the plane. And <laughs> um, the, uh, the flight attendants, um, began to realize, I mean, sometimes when you deplane people, you know, they take their time, you know, and it takes, it's quite a while. It's, it's never a pretty process getting it, getting as anybody that's ever flown, you know, it's not pretty getting on or off an aircraft. <laughs> Boy, let me tell you. And, um, but so it becomes more than usually obvious when after people who, are most likely motivated to get off the plane so that they can get to where they want to go. You've got five people who aren't motivated to get off the plane. And then you begin to approach them and you're speaking English to people who act like as if they don't speak English. Mm. Now, now in real time, like what was that guy's name? Jack Bauer on uh, the 24 program in real time, you've got, um, these flight attendants who did not yet know that the other planes were crashing into the World Trade Center and, and uh, wherever else they were allegedly crashing into things. There is that school of thought, by the way, and um, that I am quite aware of. You know, like a plane can't bring down a, a building. Right. No way. Because air, air, airplane fuel doesn't burn sufficient to burn uh, and melt structural steel but controlled demolition can well thermite can too but mm. you know uh, thermite is an explosive which would be a controlled demolition <gasps> but nonetheless the planes uh, they're part of the scenario right because because there's a product there's an objective to be accomplished and I have to tell this in you know, the plausible deniability, which is part of an intelligence operation, which is the reason why we're going to talk about 9-11 just briefly, you know, and, and it's just this one component of it that isn't part of what everybody got to be aware of. So there's five guys that turn out to be Middle Eastern males sitting in various uh, positions on this uh, uh, Delta flight, this Delta aircraft. And... Uh, and, and then the, uh, the flight attendants go back up and let the pilot in the, the, the cabin know, hey, we got these guys back here and they're not wanting to get off the plane. They're not moving. We're told them they're not moving. And so they the decision was made to call airport security. And airport security at that point in time began to be aware of these other um, um, elements of the attack of 9-11 taking place. 
So they brought the police, the airport police with them, and they came down to the plane. By that time, um, one or more of the towers uh, had uh, been hit. And so they had a heightened suspicion, shall we say, <clears throat> that these guys were up to no good. And so we're just going to fast forward the story. They got these guys off the plane, but under the seat cushions of all five of these individuals were nine millimeters. Jesus. Now, that actually happened. So how can And how did they, that get oh, passed? Anyway. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, you think, you think, Donozo, you think possibly that there was a, a, that's a clue, a red flag. How did that get passed? The, uh, the right. non-TSA uh, contracted mm -hmm. boarding uh, uh, security screening companies at that time at Logan International Airport. I've flown through Logan. And um, uh, uh, when I threw through Logan, if, you, if anybody has any remote knowledge of what X-ray imaging looks like, things that are solid metal appear as dark blue-black. I had my LAPD badge in, in the leather uh, um, badge holder in a, uh, in a briefcase for, as a carry-on. And I'm, like, I'm waiting for that person sitting behind that x-ray machine to spot the badge and, and just to clarify what, what, what they were looking at. Because you can send, depending on certain badges, you can see that it's a badge as opposed to some other you know, black piece of steel. You know, it could be a hand grenade. Ooh, you don't want to confuse a hand grenade for a police badge, do you? Oh Would my God. You? Eh, that's a small matter. Not. And uh, so, um, you know, the, um, they, didn't, they didn't spot the badge. Oh, my God. I'm going, sweet. <laughs> Morons. I mean, so anyway, seriously. Yeah. But so how did the other four planes that only had box cutters not have nine millimeters underneath right. their seats? Right. Okay. Or worse. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So when, when, when the government writes the script that gets published by you know, uh, the, the media outlets. The fake news media outlets. Be careful. Right. You know? And it takes, it takes people, I mean, the internet was up and running by then, obviously. And uh, Twitter was up by that time. I, I, I never, I refused to do social media until I ended up after I got hurt uh, at the, at the uh, work in the embassy job. And I came home and I was like, okay, now I'm an old man. And I'm going, what am I going to do? So I'll, I'll hang out on Twitter. But prior to that, I had nothing to do with, with, with uh, social media. You know. I was the same. My job required me to be on it. But anyway. Yeah. Okay, so the, um, the CIA and the NSA do, in fact, function inside this country. Um, some of the incidences that occurred uh, when I was a screener at Spokane Airport uh, Across the purview of both of those agencies, and uh, the man who, um, who was a uh, uniform screening supervisor for TSA, um, eventually over time, um, I, I always asked him. I said, "Where do you really work at?" Because nobody, 
nobody knows what you know. And I, there were things that I knew that I thought I was the only one of a few people that knew for certain things about how the government works. You know, and, and he would uh, take me for walks and or you know take me into the office and, and <laughs> don't, don't get in a boat with him. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, don't get in a boat with him. <laughs> Oh, and uh, no, he was a good guy. He was a good I'm just guy. kidding. And um, <laughs> you know, I, I used to ask him. I said, "Who do you really work for?" And he goes, "Oh, the State Department." And I go, "You're a liar! You're a liar!" You know. And um, but when you go around the country and you see these large farms of satellite dishes that's not that's not um comcast <laughs> i'm sorry it's not comcast okay? someone explain this to me who used to work in law enforcement by the way on a exalted are, level let's just say okay when we get into the court system as to the as to this topic of intelligence there are judges throughout the country, strategically um, placed in, in uh, state, county, judicial districts, uh, who are, they carry different oaths along with their ordinary oaths as judges. And they are the only ones who will hear national security arraignments and trials. Um, this also dovetails into the fact that I want you to know that there are three layers of law in this country. And of course, they're going to go, oh, yeah, the Constitution. Oh, uh, yeah, well, uh, that's the lowest. And above it is the uh, Uniform Commercial Act. Uh, uniform, the UCC, the Uniform UCC, Com Commercial Code. Uh, yeah, well, you were taught that. And then above that is the admiral, Admiralty Law. Mar Maralty, uh, Maritime, which you have to have a separate bar for. You can't just yes, go to law do. school. Yeah, yes, and that and patent attorneys need a separate bar. And there's, an, yes, there's, there's a little thing about tax attorneys too, but just for the record. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, why is that important? Oh, when Rudy Giuliani was running for president um, as a candidate, uh, 2008, against a bomber, and uh, uh, he was on Sean Hannity's program one night, and he explained what I just explained to you guys, and Hannity was like completely unprepared to know what the relevance of what Rudy was talking about. But it had to do with some, some particular element of, of uh, contemporary uh, current events at the time. And, and Giuliani was explaining the fact that the, uh, the American judicial system isn't set up to handle that kind of a problem because, and then he explained why. He said that the, uh, the Constitution is the lowest form of, of uh, uh, law in this country. Two weeks later, and he was leading in the polls at the time to be the uh, uh, Republican congressional candidate for that particular election year. Two weeks later, he dropped out of the, before the Florida primaries 
for no reason. He stepped over a line. Yeah. And when people in this country who are decent people or they're, they're doing something that is decent at a moment and they cross over a line. You're done. In one way or another, you're done. I'm raising my hand. Yeah. Both hands. Now, yeah. <laughs> See, now, does anybody know who Betty Curry is? I'm the only person here, so I'll say no. <laughs> okay, so Betty Curry, Betty Curry was Bill Clinton's um, <sighs> personal secretary Gross. for the twelve years for the twelve years that she, uh, he was the governor of Arkansas, and uh, during both of his terms as president. Oh wait, is this the girl that? Okay, go ahead. And and uh, Mrs. Curry had two sons, two adult yeah. sons. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Mrs. Curry was the uh, first first and foremost person of interest uh, in the, uh, did you see Monica Lewinsky go in the, uh, the uh, Oval <laughs> Office with President Clinton on these dates and times? And what would Miss Curry say under any form of scrutiny? What would she say? Well, what would you want to not risk her saying? So there is this thing in law in, in intelligence work because what I'm going to tell you here is that the entire operation of the United States government is itself an intelligence program. It is therefore constantly, perpetually involved with the use of disinformation and propaganda and psychological warfare operations, because that's what, how geopolitics is conducted by each major player nation state in this, in this world every single moment of every single day. So this, this thing about leverage is one of the sources and methods that, that intelligence work is affected. So Mrs. Curry was given a, a message, not directly. Both of her sons on separate instances were beaten badly. Mrs. Curry, we don't know, did, question mark, or did not, question mark, get the picture as to why she was expected to understand why her sons were being beaten relative to the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So unfortunately, one of her sons was out riding a mountain road on a motorcycle in North Carolina, North Carolina, for those of you on the West Coast. Um, and he was run off the road. And the, uh, he ended up off the road down a, some form of a ditch. And he crawled back up. And the vehicle that had run him off the road had stopped and turned around, came back as soon as he was, and he was badly injured. And he pulled himself back up onto the road and was incapable of getting out of the way of the car that had hit him initially, coming back to run him over and kill him. Did Betty Curry get the message? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Did that happen? Did Bill Clinton sanction that? That's what's known as plausible deniability. I did not know. I did not know. I never smoked marijuana. I didn't know until I read in my mom's book. Yeah. Assassinations. Assassinations yeah. is another source and method. 
Who's Jeremy Borda? Admiral Jeremy Borda, United States Navy, um, Chairman of the Chief, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff during Bill Clinton's tour in the White House. He committed suicide because somebody thought, well, because he, he, he became aware that he, he was wearing a purple heart that he didn't, uh, did, didn't earn, really. What was, what was going on in the um, military opposing, opposing William Jefferson Clinton at the time in American history? Was there some um, what are known as red flag operations? The red flag in the military is is a military coup, a real one, a real one, um, and it's uh, ugly. It has nothing to do with the uh, imposition of the national state of emergency, which is on the books and has always been since um, Ronald Reagan's presidency available to be utilized if necessary. But a real military coup would be used as a alternative to the military being fed up with civilian leadership, being fully patriotic and, and not willing to cooperate with going to these wars uh, that we've been involved in. And the military itself being seated with members of the Council on Foreign Relations as requirements to get their general flag officer stars and their and their um, their admiral tabs on their on their on their uniforms. So Jeremy Border wasn't willing to do any of that, and he was aware of the beginnings of serious and threatening unrest within the military against seated national political figures. There was a, an attempt to take Al Gore out on an airplane one time over Chicago. That's a small matter. That probably caught a few people's attention. So a message had to be sent plausible deniability, sources and methods. Jeremy Borda today committed suicide. He was upset that somebody found out that he was wearing a purple heart that he didn't earn. <laughs> did he, Who's did, gonna question that? Was there a red scarf involved by any chance? No. Uh, uh, it was an accident, right? No and, it, no, and it didn't take place on a black and white check floor. <laughs> Darn. You know, and, and and Bill Clinton didn't walk out of the uh, the uh, the Oval Office wearing a um, um, a mouse mask. He didn't. We could keep going. We could keep going for those who know, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Yes, we're talking about the Kate Spade murder. Yeah. And the uh, and the Cornell murder and the um, uh, uh, what's that other guy's name? Bennington, uh, Bourdain. Yeah. Oh yeah, Bourdain. Yeah. And Don't and and, Ep and, and Epstein hung himself with a, with a with a orange 
bed sheet. Yeah. Was it really so, orange? Is that what they is that what they said? I don't know if it was orange oh. or not, but it sounds good. No, but it you know it was it was um, uh, it was it, it was a paper paper bed sheet because everybody knows that you can hang yourself. Unbelievable. From the side of a bed with a paper bed sheet. Yeah. But what are people supposed to do about it this whole time? You know, I mean, we hear that's the thing. Like, what are people supposed to do about it? Well, finally, we've started seeing some people take to the streets here, by the way. I don't know if you've missed that, but there's been quite a few protests going on in, in Southern California uh, daily at that. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, that's good. But we need millions more people. In the oh, yeah. Well, that are, you got to start somewhere. Ilk. Yeah. You, you got to start somewhere. So at yeah. least there's something instead of nothing. Right. right. So all of this stuff was made possible on this country to take us to the point where we're at today, completely compromised and overwhelmed by um, uh, the advancements of technology and outcomes of elections and everything. Because at the very beginning of the outset of this, the politicians in this country made it possible the Department of State made it possible to bring in people from overseas who, who were sworn enemies of the United States government, the United States Constitution, and the American people uh, to affect, and they affected, um, the outcome of what cultural Marxism, political correctness, for those of you in real Linda, that's an old Rush Limbaugh um, put down, and... Uh, <laughs> And, and just um, to be able to take people and, and regroove their, their whole entire behavior for fear, perceived fear, which is a source and method using leverage of checking your conscience at the doorpost of when you go to work or wherever you go after you leave home, because no one wants to know what you think or feel. Because you must be conformed. And now we're worried about social credits. Oh, my God. So social credits, which is what's practiced over in China, Mm -hmm. we're already on the way to there. How is there really any real difference except for the fact that that you'll have um, uh, functions put into your phone and into your file, your government files that that will uh, score you for your compliance with things. Look at where everybody's at. You know, taking pictures of themselves getting their shots and their boosters God. and wearing their masks. People are okay. getting tattoos of the shot. Yeah, they have like, they're tattooed that they've been vaccinated. It's unfriggin' real. <laughs> yeah. So, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave a few things out here because we're going way past probably your time. Um, we're going to talk about things that happened that I'm aware of uh, since 9-11 and I'm just going to go through these and if it sounds like I'm reading them it's because I am I wrote them but it's still going to sound like I'm reading them post 9-11 events not classified or reported as acts of terrorism and or attacks against the homeland that's what George Bush and his um, clown first um, homeland security Director uh, Tom Ridge, who was a former governor of uh, Pennsylvania, that was their buzzwords for making sure that the American people, um, nominally in the stock market, 
primarily would not crash and fall apart because there was, uh, we were going to protect you from any other subsequent attacks. However, small matter. Um, Osama bin Laden's second in charge, um, I forget his first name, but his last name was Zarqawi. Um, he had said within a couple of weeks after 9-11 that there was going to be another attack on the United States on a religious holiday before the end of 2001. It was reported. Now, some of the things that I'm going to be talking about here, I've already done my own checking to see if uh, through archive, uh, the Internet Archive, and uh, through a few other DuckDuckGo type searches using the, the proper ways of, of phrasing the search query of events that took place that were in fact reported. Well, I can't find them. Some of them you can't find anymore for obvious reasons. Huh. But we're going to go through these events in somewhat chronological order. Uh, and we're going to talk about them just to give you an understanding of the fact that was America attacked after 9-11? George Bush would say, no, we protected the homeland. Wrong. You're a liar. So there was a chartered airplane that took off from Palomar Airport in San Diego County, which is right around where Camp Pendleton is located, um, on the 25th of December. It had uh, two Saudi, Amer Saudi Arabian males and one female Saudi, why I don't know, uh, on the plane. And they did not uh, uh, file a flight plan and they were allowed to take off. That violated things that were already emergency measures that were put into place after 9-11 concerning various things just like that. Flight plans had to be filed. No, not today. So they flew up the coast, and the first thing that you strategically run across is the San Onofre functioning nuclear power facility, just immediately south of San Clemente. And um, for whatever reason, the plane did not, it could have, or we don't know, and it was, and the, and the way in which it was reported were created to change what actually did happen. But the story that was rep reported in the Orange County Register, which is a fairly large newspaper in Southern California, on the 26th, which I read, and I used to have a copy of it, uh, accounted for the fact that the plane crashed within a mile offshore of the nuclear San Onofre facility. And that the uh, National Transportation Safety Board that investigates uh, uh, air crashes, respond to the scene with all the other alphabet soup uh, uh, agencies and conducted their investigation. Uh, they determined that uh, one, of the, uh, pass one of the male passengers was dead and it doesn't account for what happened to the other two live passengers. It, it implies that the other two passengers were alive, but it doesn't say who they were doesn't identify their nationalities, but if you go back to the people who were interviewed, 
for the story by the Orange County Register, it was two Saudi Arabians and, and a female Saudi. Uh, the, so the male and the female that were alive, we don't know where they went. Eventually, the plane was pulled up from the, uh, the engine, uh, from the, uh, the um, bottom of the ocean and was, uh, the engine was started and it started right up right away. There was no <laughs> mechanical problem. It was determined there was no mechanical problem. Why did it get sent down? Perhaps there was some electronic interference because if the, <laughs> knowing the way the government actually works and, and there's, there's several military bases around that area, both Marines, um, something like that and probably what actually really happened was that there was some back channel information being put out and we got a bogey going up towards the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the nuclear facility. Oops. And, you know, did he get taken down by electronics? Could have been, don't know. But why would, why would three people bent on trying to crash the plane into the nuclear facility not do so? Unanswered question. But did it happen on a, a religious holiday that Zarqawi said was going to happen? And was it reported? Yes, it did. Was America not attacked that day? After that, continuing on in the, in the years that followed 9-11, in the first few years after 9-11, more than 50 train derailments occurred on the east, what's called the Eastern Corridor of the United States. I remember that. Time, yeah, I remember all those trains kept getting derailed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And at the time, the American railroad system was using computers manufactured by the computer company that is owned by the People's Liberation Army of the Chinese Communist Party called Lenovo. And the, uh, the Lenovo is a knockoff of the IBM um, notebook, the original IBM notebook, uh, for those who remember those things. And um, it was in, in the, 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 the implication is that hacking the um, system of the of the of the, of the railroads that control the switchings of the tracks speeds the signaling you can derail a train not only was it just a lot of trains getting derailed but it was on freight trains for those who don't know You'll, you'll notice that um, you've probably all been stopped at a railroad crossing at one point in time or other, and there's box cars and there's different types of cars and there's tank cars. And, um, and there's so every now and then there's one or two tank cars that are put in between a bunch of other types of cars, flat cars or whatever, but they're out there all by themselves going down the tracks. Those are what are those, those, usually contain ingredients, uh, contents that are highly uh, caustic or, or flammable. And they're meant to be kept away from other types of tanker cars that have other types of ingredients as their contents, that if the two were to be joined because they would be next to each other during, because these all of, all of our corporations are run based on 
probabilities and things, just similar to the way the military runs their COMEX exercises to make sure that everything is, is, is uh, strategized out for and to make sure that we don't overlook anything. The big picture, remember we talked about the big picture. And, and so why would, uh, how, could you, how could you create a situation? Well, eventually, if you crash the cars, when you flip the, uh, uh, the switch for the, uh, the rerouting of, of part of a train that's going down in one direction, all of a sudden you've broken the coupling and you flip cars over, you can have, you can create it. Never does there just be one car in a train derail. Usually it's a whole bunch of them. So 50 of those was the United States attack during that. We'll let you decide. When I was at the uh, Spokane International Airport uh, working as a screener in 2002, a Drake University student flew to Spokane International Airport on a um, same day round trip ticket. Baggage screeners uh, conducting a baggage screen for that particular passenger uh, came across the fact that there was a um, Fairchild Air Force Base facilities security map hidden within one of the compartments of this uh, carry-on bag. Uh, not a carry-on bag, but a, um, a bag that was gonna go in a cargo hold. And further examination uh, by people who had the skills uh, uh, at that particular time uh, that worked for TSA, probably that guy that I was talking to you about earlier, um, realized that uh, there's nuclear warheads that are stored and that um, on, the, on the base and that there is a um, underground aviation uh, petroleum uh, fuel um, pipeline that comes in from across the country and comes in underground to the, uh, uh, the tank farm there at, at the Air Force Base. To target those could have disastrous results. And that was what this student and his little cell back at Drake University were planning. Was that an attack, an attempted attack on the homeland? When I was a bomb dog handler back in Detroit, sometime between 2004 and 2006, um, four Middle Eastern terror cell members were taken into custody by, um, I don't know which agency, but it wasn't one that was chartered to function within the United States um, because they had been um, surveilling and uh, following um, my bomb dog and I back and forth for at least a day between the facility where I worked and where we were residing. That didn't go over real well with me and I had this contact and uh, I dropped a dime and Four hours later, I get a phone call back and they said, uh, they're in rendition. You'll never, they'll never see the light of day again. Now, does everybody here remember Oklahoma City? Yep. Well, okay. So there was a guy that got away from Oklahoma City. His name was? I'm blanking out. Don't ask me. John Doe Bl number two. Oh. 
who's actually a Mexican gangbanger from uh, the streets of Chicago. And he actually has a real name. I can't remember it right at the moment. But he was John Doe number two. He was the um, um, government um, what do they call those people? Uh, plant that was in the cell that, that did Oklahoma City with McVeigh and, and uh, whoever else was involved in that. So there was an event called the uh, Lackawanna Six. Um, Lackawanna Six is um, in upstate New York. It's on a it's on a, a, a bridge crossing over the St. Lawrence um, between Canada and um, and the United States. The news made a, as little as possible of a uh, notification to the public that a, uh, a bunch of bad guys had been arrested coming over the Lackawanna Bridge. And there were six of them. And uh, for a while, it fought, they followed um, uh, them through the uh, very brief appearances in court. And then it fell off the news cycle. But it never disclosed what they got captured for. So what did they get captured for? Oh, well, there was this thing they were carrying, which was a, um, not, a not a dirty bomb. Dirty bomb is radiological material that is paired together with other explosives and, and can disperse radiation um, in, a, in a limited area for you know, producing you know, a certain amount of, of devastation. But a tactical nuclear warhead, which okay. usually a tactical <clears throat> nuclear warhead, which is usually one megaton, is um, is what these six individuals were carrying. And the second thing of, of, of uh, note was that one of the six was John Doe number two. <laughs> now, the thing about why wouldn't the press notified in other words why weren't the american people notified that uh, a tactical nuclear warhead was uh, captured george bush said no we're america's safe there's not going to be any more attacks on the homeland so did george bush lie <laughs> or was america attacked could it have been attacked so let's expand the fact that well okay they fought they, they got the nuke right pitch in only problem is there's 16 of them. <laughs> and I started this out by telling you that there was a stolen airplane out of Palomar Airport. Well, it turns out immediately after 9-11, there were 17 stolen Cessna aircrafts or single engine aircrafts in the Cessna size range of, of air, uh, airframes that were stolen and being used to fly 16 16 tactical nuclear warheads back in front, back and forth across the Canadian frontier into and out of and back across into Canada on a regular basis. And they were being followed by nest teams being flown by the United States Navy P3 Orions. 
and tracking them because nuclear radiation always leaks and they, and they have the technology on, on, the, on the P3 Orion to track the emission of the, of the nuclear radiation coming from these tactical nuclear warheads. One of these tactical nuclear warheads, one of them was 25 megaton. That one, according to the intelligence sources that I had, was, was only and exclusively intended to be used for Washington, D.C. Were the other ones ever recovered? I don't know. Was America, the attempt to attack America, an ongoing threat? Did it actually in some way, manner or another take place? Yeah, it did. Um, there's a nuclear power facility called Fermi, F-E-R-M-I, in Monroe, Michigan, which is a suburb outside of Detroit. Somewhere around 2004, two Middle Eastern males were filmed on security surveillance system, uh, trying to uh, cut a hole and did cut a hole in the fence. And they succeeded in getting away before it, uh, attempts to capture them at that location could be uh, completed. Several months later, in Romulus, Michigan, which is a, also a suburb of Detroit, um, a uh, commercial chemical supply facility was broken into in the middle of the night by a group of individuals. And um, 500 gallons of acetone and another large cache of peroxide were stolen. doesn't blow your mind I don't know what what will uh, I'm can't wait for the next episodes of the next revolution will not be televised and uh, I think we just all heard some news there that none of us have heard before so remember you heard it here first folks uh, you heard it here on a fistful of truth from Mike Fanning about the fifth plane about the fifth plane uh, from an uncontrolled narrative from uh, his personal vantage point um, from his experience about a fifth plane in the uh, in the 9-11 uh, attacks on our freedom. And uh, I, I personally uh, did not know about a fifth plane, although I had some other information from quite some time ago that now, after many years, uh, now makes sense. It's funny how God makes us wait and he delivers the timing, excuse me, he determines the timing and he delivers uh, the news to us when we are ready to hear it. So thank you, uh, Mike Fanning, and thank you for uh, giving it, bringing to us nothing but the truth and for your service to our country, our humanity continues as we, as we continue with you on this journey of, of truth-telling and uh, a, an incredible narrative that truly uh, is unforgettable. If you know somebody who would appreciate to listen to 
uh, this podcast, especially this series or any of the series here, uh, please do pass this information along because I rely on no advertising and there's a lot of censorship to all of the information and content that I put out. The attacks of the enemy will intensify, we were told, and believe me, uh, it has. But that doesn't mean the enemy has a, stands a chance against this warrior of God and all of the warriors of Almighty Father who appear uh, on a fistful of truth um, this year in the year 2022, moving forward. So please don't forget to join me tomorrow for the interview with uh, Hiro Emoto. And uh, in the meantime, I hope you have had a, a pleasant listening journey. And again, I urge you to share this information with others and share it on your social media because, you know, that is the most important thing we can do. The, the faster we, we are, are all um, are awake to these truths and the quicker we get to move on from the old reality, which serves us no more. God bless you, patriots. Where we go one, we go all. Thank you.